0: Folks, welcome to my podcast. What is it about? Simple. Via this podcast, I'm going to run for President of the United States. Consider this my formal announcement. Now, you may be wondering why I'm taking this dramatic step, and we'll get to that. But first, let me talk about the reasons why I'm qualified for this unique position. First off, I've written or said things in the past that would automatically disqualify me. I'll leave it up to you to dig them up. But when you do, that's how I'll know that my candidacy is taking off. Second, I've known Ukrainians, I think. Are they billionaires or political leaders? Well, no. But if I become president, they probably could be. So, note to my possible Ukrainian friends who vote for me. Third, I've changed my positions on pretty much everything a few times over. I'm actually fond of this one. I think it reflects growth. Fourth, you wouldn't trust me to run a chicken coop, which is probably what you'd say about the other candidates too, so I fit right in. And most importantly, this isn't my first rodeo. When I was 10 years old, my teacher, Mrs. Schaff, wrote me in as her choice for president. Sadly, I lost that election. But I'm not a quitter, so 33 years later, here we are once again. Now why am I not qualified? This side of things gets a little more complex. The first reason I'm not qualified is that I'm a Jew. Now, I'm not suggesting people wouldn't vote for a Jew, but as any good anti-Semite will tell you, we're supposed to orchestrate things from behind the scenes. You have no idea how hard it was to get the Central Committee of the Great Jewish Global Conspiracy to let me do this. But as I told them, Ukraine is a Jewish president, and somebody let him apply for the job unless you take this seriously, because there are some real idiots out there, there is no central committee of the great Jewish global conspiracy. In fact, Jewish organization is a bit more like this. We think we have a special mission to help the world, call it obnoxiousness. But we spend most of our time fighting with each other about what that means. Some try to be inspiring actors, some communists, some religious crazies, some bankers, and some say, screw it and become crooks. But even they probably rationalize it. Eh, and then you have Jeffrey Epstein. The end result, we don't agree with each other about anything. Now, there's a second major problem with my candidacy. I don't actually live in the district. I mean, this seems to be a prerequisite for the celebrity Senate candidates or British prime ministers, but for some reason, it is a much bigger problem when talking about being the president of the United States. So, full disclosure, I live in Israel. I used to live in the United States. I've even got 14 years I need it under my belt, and I'm a citizen. But then I got too depressed about it, and I left. There is one good thing about not living in the U.S., though. I have the benefit of perspective. So do with that what you may. Third, I don't actually have any sort of party that would want to back me up. I mean, I'm not a conservative, although I used to be, and I'm not a liberal. I'm not even some weak-tea, lacking convictions, kind of dude hanging out in the middle. I'm on a totally different channel than pretty much anybody else. So I won't be glomming onto any sort of constituency. It's got to hurt, right? Oh, and one more thing. I don't actually want the job. Don't turn off your podcast. Don't adjust your set. You heard me right. I mean, it'd be fun to be president, but not at the cost of exposing all the embarrassing or stupid things I've done or my attempts at shady dealings with Ukrainian billionaires. All of this begs the question, why am I running? Is it because Mrs. Schaff said I should? Well, no. I'm running because it is depressing to see the United States go to waste. The U.S. has such magnificent potential. It has such tremendous opportunities. And it is still the model the rest of the world looks to. It is a broken model. Perhaps it has always been a broken model. But it would benefit all of mankind if it were to be fixed. And I think it can be. The problem is, the United States is sick. Everyone talks about polarization, but that is just a symptom. People polarize when they're desperately looking for answers. And they are looking for answers because there are problems underneath the surface. Great, big problems. Some are structural, some are social, and a whole lot mix everything together. I'm not gonna harp on this group or that group or blame these guys or those guys. That's not really my focus. I don't have a team. But I do wanna share one basic statistic. Suicide rates in America have shot up 26% among men and 53% among women in the last 20 years. And it's even worse among young people. For 10 to 14-year-old females, the rate is up 240%. And for males, it is up 74%. And among 15 to 24-year-old females, it's up 93%. And males are up 35%. Something is really, really broken. This is shocking and terrifying and terrible and it should be on the front page every day. But it isn't. One of the reasons it isn't is because suicide is complex. You can't point at any one thing and say, aha, that's why she did it. In fact, I believe we can't erase suicide. So I'm not looking at baseline suicide rates. Those vary widely by culture, even within the United States. For example, African-Americans have a much lower suicide rate than white people, although their rate has also been rising. No, what interests me is the change in suicide rates. The rate has shot up, and that indicates a real problem. Now, some people blame the internet, the lack of real social connections, shaming, shallowness of relationships, all that kind of stuff. It's a great explanation. The only problem is the country I live in. I live in a highly connected country in Israel, and the suicide rates here have plummeted over the last 20 years. So something else is going on. And I think it's something far more fundamental than the internet. I believe we are not giving our young people a purpose in life. We're telling them to be happy. We're telling them to seek happiness. But seeking your own happiness, seeking your own self actualization, is not the same thing as a purpose. It is not enough to live for. Purpose, a purpose greater than ourselves, is what makes us tick. And that's why I'm running. The world needs the United States to be a model, and Americans need purpose to live up to their own potential. So what are we going to do on this podcast? Well, the answer is real simple. We're going to talk about what's going on in the world, and then I'm going to read you a story. Yes, a story. Not a funny story, but a serious story about a serious topic. And then I'll talk about the story a bit and why I wrote it. And a few internet minutes later, I'll be the universally hated candidate who holds horrifyingly progressive and or retrograde views, depending on who you are. That is, if everything goes well. Before we get to all that, though, I want to raise one more important item of business. I haven't registered with the Federal Elections Commission. My understanding is that so long as I don't raise $5,000, or spend it probably, I don't have to. So that's my goal. Let's win this thing on $4,999 in total expenditure. So far, full disclosure, I'm at zero. Of course, if you want to go ahead and form a super pack or two, or whatever they're called nowadays, and raise billions of dollars, go right ahead. Just don't involve me. I have a day job, and I'd like to keep it. But if you do enjoy my candidacy, share my candidacy. To hijack a phrase, talk is cheap, and I don't have to report it. So, on to the next segment of the show. What's going on in the world? Well, the big news the last few weeks has been civil unrest all over the place. In Iraq, Lebanon, and Iran, that's the first place I'd like to talk about. It's in my neighborhood. We see a bunch of civil unrest happening in all these places. A lot of people have been killed. The internet was shut down in Iran for uh, over 100 hours. We're not exactly certain what happened there. Now, we can cheer these things. We can boo them, whatever it happens to be. We have to consider what our actions should be. And the fact is, is that revolutions happen, and we've seen a lot of them recently. The Arab Spring was one of the most recent runs of revolutions. We all know what happened, though. We all know that sometimes revolution, which seems to be so positive and uplifting, doesn't turn out to be or create or lead to a new dawn. Often, as in Syria, it just leads to horror. So in some cases, revolution is a good thing, and in some cases, it's a terrible thing. And I think the distinction between the successful revolutions and the failure revolutions is that some societies have already developed the civil fabric necessary to rise out of a revolution, free and empowered. All they're doing is getting rid of a corrupt power structure. They've already got a society that's willing to take its place. And some societies don't have that fabric. And so chaos emerges when the strongman or the autocratic system is removed. So I think Iran is one of those places that has the civil fabric it needs. It just needs to be free. It just needs to uh, get out from underneath the current power structure. So as president, I keep the pressure up on Iran. Their lack of funding is showing up as weakness in Iraq and Lebanon, where they aren't able to pay the bills. But I'd go even further. I'd do more to encourage change in Iran. And most of that would be messaging. First, I'd message a carrot. We want to invest in Iran. We want free, open trade with a free and open state of Iran, and others, including Israel and the EU, do too. We just need Iranian help to make it possible. But part of it's a little more nefarious. You see, Iran has an elaborate and beautifully designed suppression system. It starts by limiting elected officials' powers. Then it goes on to limiting who can be an elected official in the first place. It goes on to things like arresting the families of overseas processors, and so on and so on, until, as a last resort, the regime deploys violent militias called the besiege. They've had to deploy these militias twice in the last 12 years. They've had to depend on the last line of defense. And so it's my belief that if we take away this line of defense, then everything else can open up. And there are two ways to do that. One way is to empower anti-state militias. The U.S. is probably already doing this, but it's slow and very hard to pull off, and it hasn't worked in the last 40 years. But there's another way. It just so happens that the Republican Guard and the Ayatollah are intensely corrupt, We know this because the U.S. Treasury and various other governments study this information intensely for the purpose of sanctions. But we only use it to block their ability to bank. Let's find other ways to distribute and use the data we already have. Because if we can show this corruption to the people on the ground, the people on the ground can look around and their own eyes can validate what we're saying. That's important because the Besiege are idealistic warriors in support of the religious regime. If we could undermine some of their belief in those they support, then their willingness to kill in the name of the regime might just fall away. And if this happens, then Iran might just become a positive influence in the region. Now, Iran's not the only insurrection going on. There's insurrections in a couple of other places, and one of them that's very interesting is Hong Kong. Now In Hong Kong, there's a free and functioning civil society. The problem is is that that civil society is facing off against the behemoth, and that behemoth values stability. There are good reasons for this, by the way. If we look at what happens in bad revolutions that have happened recently, and we make it exponentially worse, then we get China. China has probably had more people killed in revolutions than the rest of the world combined. And I'm not just talking about Mao. China can change. But the rulers of China know that that change has to be tightly controlled. We know China can change because they adopted Hong Kong's economic model. Of course, the Chinese Communist Party doesn't want to give up political power. And so they'll crush any attempts at it. They have to crush those attempts, or they themselves could be threatened, and a significant change in the political structure of China could result in chaos. So the Chinese government can't be seen backing down in the face of a city that has decided to revolt against them. But as far as the protesters are concerned, they have to push back too. There's risks that they could be identified based on video footage or whatever and dragged off to hidden mainland courts if they lose this battle. They've done too much to stop now. So we have a standoff and neither party can back down. It is not a pretty situation. So do I recommend? Really, I don't see a resolution to this problem. But I do see better possibilities. Hong Kong has one of the world's most productive populations. Very little of that is due to its infrastructure. Buildings and docks don't make a society. A good part of that is due to its proximity to China. But a whole lot of it is its people. The Chinese, who most valued freedom, at least economic freedom, fled mainland China during the Communist Revolution and came to Hong Kong. And they were economic dynamos. They still are. And now they are political dynamos, willing to risk their lives for freedom and showing it every single day. So, invite them to come to the U.S. Make a simple rule. If you were born in Hong Kong, you can move to the U.S. We wouldn't grant citizenship, not at first, just the right to work with a five-year path to full citizenship. Not everyone would take it, of course. Some would stay and fight for the city they know and love. Others would consider the transition too hard. And others still would prefer to stay under Chinese rule than leave. I wouldn't blame them. But as I think it says in the Statue of Liberty, send us your protesters, your troublemakers, your technical students, and your voters who yearn for something better. China would be happy to see them go, and we'd be happy to see them come. I wouldn't recommend this with every conflict, but maybe... Hong Kong's civil society can help strengthen ours. So what else is up in the news? Well, there's unrest in Bolivia, Chile, and Colombia. We'll cover that another time, but very quickly, the same fight between oligarchs and socialists has been running for about 150 years now, and it isn't going anywhere quickly. Oh, and there's Netanyahu and Trump and Biden and Warren and so many others. Oh, we, let's skip commentary on actual political players. This is meant to be a family show, right? So let's get on with the story. This week's story is Medicine. It is by me, your not-so-humble candidate for President of the United States. If you enjoy it, you can find more of my stories on Amazon. Medicine. The camp was dark. And smelled of unwashed bodies, dried blood, sand, and feces. Over us sparsely-leaved trees hung, blotting out much of the night sky. A campfire flickered over our little community. All around the fire were children, the cold AK-47s resting tightly against their sleeping bodies. Nearby, I could just barely make out the sound of a small river flowing, cutting its way through the thin underbrush. I shouldn't have been awake. I wasn't supposed to be awake, but I couldn't manage to sleep. Once again, I couldn't manage to sleep. I just lay there, my eyes closed, pretending to sleep, pretending the horror had not overcome me. There were no guards watching us. I wasn't fooling anybody else. If anything, I was trying to fool myself. The camp, aside from the crackling of the fire, the gurgling of the water, and the shifting of restless bodies, was silent. And then I heard something. I heard soft footsteps. The footsteps of an intruder. The footsteps of an enemy. I opened my eyes, grabbed my gun, and rose to my feet, and all around me, like zombies coming to life, other children did the same. We were ready for the enemy. We had no fear of the enemy. What could you possibly fear? if you sought death itself. We spread out, long practice yielding its benefits on this unlikely battlefield. Were these government troops coming to kill us? Our eyes and ears focused on the source of the sound and slowly, incredibly, it became clear. There was no army. These were the footsteps of a single person. Who would approach our camp? Who would have the courage? We were feared and hated. We even feared and hated ourselves as we waited Curiosity rippled through our ranks. A few of us glanced nervously in other directions, long experience telling them to anticipate a trap. But then, from the thin brush, a woman slowly emerged. She was dressed in a reed skirt and a thin brown cotton top. She had nothing in her hands and only a look of hope on her face. Nobody shot her. We just watched her fascinated and then, without fear or even defiance, she began to look at each of us in turn her eyes were yearning for something i watched her with all the rest stunned and confused and then in a flash i realized i knew her face i knew the crazy fearless bull-headed woman who walked into our camp she was my mother and i knew in that instance that my worst nightmares had once again been given life I was ten years old when they came. There had been nothing special about my day. My father and I were standing knee-deep on the banks of the Lazy Brown River. We had been working. In the distance I could see the sporadic acacia trees, their vast canopies seeming like green clouds placed against the clear sky of the savanna. Nearby stood our village, a ramshackle collection of tiny brick-walled homes covered with thatched roofs. It was surrounded by the sandy and clay-like dirt that defined our world that was the smell that day and almost every other day clay and sand and the tepid life of the river these were not fertile lands in this place only one useful crop survived cassava the plant seemed like a reflection of our reality its roots are tough coated with a thick and protective bark it can take hold in unforgiving earth It provides tremendous nourishment, giving us the energy that we need to survive. And it constantly threatens our lives. Cassava is not like other crops. Lurking within it is a poison. Eating the root raw can be enough to paralyze or even kill a man. And in times of drought, no preparation seems to make it safe. In our tiny village, three women and two children are victims of gonzo. Their legs had been made useless by the poison within the cassava. That one plant represented the constant entwinement of our needs and our fears. Our village didn't plant the sweet varieties of cassava. Those required little preparation before they could safely be eaten. But they often needed better earth than we had. And when they did grow, they attracted thieves and bandits. They were a temptation to the desperate wanderers who roamed through the savannah. No, we planted bitter cassava. It was loaded with poison, but it discouraged these. Few would take the time necessary to safely prepare our crop. And that was why we were in the river. My father and I had knives and were cutting the bark from the roots and then slicing the roots themselves into small round slivers. Other children were arranging those pieces in the river, submerging them just upstream of a log that prevented them from being washed away. We would soak the cassava here for hours and then we would withdraw it, grind it, and spread it on large flat mats. The sun would take the final step, its powerful glare, hopefully leaching the poison from our food. My mother was not here. When my mother was in labor with me, she became very, very ill. Everybody in the city knew neither she nor I would survive the labor. The elders began to say prayers for the dying, and then on the river, a small group appeared in a boat. When they got to the village, it was clear that they were a small traveling medical team. There was a doctor on their boat, as well as supplies, a few nurses, and a few guards. The doctor wanted to set up her temporary clinic before she began her work. But the villagers forced her into action, and the doctor saved my mother's life and mine. My mother would never have more children, but our lives had been spared, and they had been given purpose. My father saw the doctor's arrival as a miracle. He sought us a sign, and he prophesied that I would grow up to be a doctor. My father had been a quiet, unassuming man, but he convinced the entire village of his vision. And so while other villages harvested cassava as they needed it, we planted and harvested far more than we needed. And while we planted, my mother traveled. She brought our cassava, processed into safe flour, looking to trade it for goods that she could eventually be traded for gold. She traveled often, despite the danger. She felt God had given her life for a reason, and so she was fearless in her dedication to my father's vision. Slowly but surely, we had gathered a small stockpile of gold. It was ten years of surplus, buried under my family's small hut. And like every other day, we were working so that I could eventually go to school. We were working so that I could become a doctor. little girl saw it first a small dust cloud in the distance and a few minutes later we could all see people walking and then in terror and dread we came to realize who they were they had a single all-terrain vehicle and they had guns they walked in a loose fit group and most of them were children there was nothing we could do We couldn't run fast enough to escape the all-terrain vehicle, and even with our small stockpile of gold, we lacked what was needed to survive. Like automatons, our little community gathered the cassava we'd been preparing and made its way out to the river. We were all there in the center of the village when the little army arrived. I remember every second of what happened next. Everybody was forced to kneel in the dirt. And then boys were selected, boys like me, and we were handed guns, one by one, pistols. And then we were told to kill our own families. The first boy, Akurungu, refused. And as he watched, they killed his kneeling family, and then they shot him as well. They continued with the next boy, and tears in his eyes, he used the pistol on himself. And we all watched as the armed children in the little band killed his family too i was next i wanted to die with my family then but my father looked up at me with his incredibly intense eyes and he said you are not meant to die today i shook my head refusing to believe what he was asking me to do i knew the calculus they were going to die i was the variable but i didn't want to live if i had killed them my father gripped the end of the pistol and guided it to his own head, and I looked at him, and I saw the pleading in his eyes. He had worked so hard for me, he had worked so hard for his vision, and he would not let me disappoint him, and so I did what I had to do, I did what he demanded, and minutes later we left the village. Almost everybody I knew was dead, vultures were circling overhead, and I knew the hyenas and the wild dogs were not far behind. Before long, nothing would be left of all the work we had done and all the life we had celebrated. We traveled after that, from village to village, recruiting, just as I had been recruited. We wanted to bring those proud village boys down. We wanted to show them that they were no better than us. Again and again we killed, and when enemies were near, when there was some sign of armed resistance, our commanders would force us to sniff some crystal powder. And then in a rage of fury and energy, we would fight. We fought wildly. And those who survived learned how to fight effectively. All of us became the evil we most hated and feared. All of us did to others what had been done to us. And all of us wanted to die, but we would not kill ourselves. Without exceptions, our families had died so that we could live. We would not debase their deaths with our own suicides. That was the only thread of decency that remained within us. I'd grown up in a village that celebrated hope. It had been a village that celebrated me. It had been a village that wanted me to escape from it so that they could take pride in the work I would do. Now I was in a different place and there was no escape. The world outside knew what we had done. We could never be accepted again. And if we tried to escape, Then we would be tortured and killed by other children. We'd be brought low by those who lacked the courage to run. Over time I learned our commanders had once been just like us. I guessed that they, like I, had come to peace with their first great sin. They could not hate themselves for that, but they could and did hate themselves for what came afterwards. Every night we all shuffled restlessly in our camp. We were together, yet so far from one another. Scenes were played in our minds individually, nightmares of the horrors we had inflicted, and every day we rose again, stealing and killing and recruiting as we had always done. As time passed, I grew to accept that my father had been wrong. Akurungu had been right. It would have been better to have died that day. My father had desired my life, but the price of my survival had been the lives of so many others, and it was a price that was not worth paying. But day after day, we all paid it. Day after day, the price we paid grew and grew, and it inevitably became an investment. We clung to our own lives ever more fiercely, seeking to give some kind of meaning to the lives we had taken. Two years had passed. I had killed thousands, and we were a thousand miles from my home, and it seemed like my nightmare would never end. And then my mother walked into our camp. We all watched her, stunned by her bravery. And then she saw me, and her face lit up with unquenchable joy. She smiled broadly and said clearly, My boy, my dear, sweet boy. I looked back at her with hard eyes, trying to will her to run. There was no hope for me. There was no reason to love me. I was not the child who she had last seen. Somehow she had found me. Somehow she had tracked me down, and I could not end well. She was to join the ranks of my nightmares. Mama, I said, you should not be here. I put every ounce of warning into my voice and she answered simply, My boy, you are to be a doctor. It is time for you to leave. I couldn't imagine the insanity. How could I leave? How could she leave? Those old dreams were gone now. They'd been replaced by a new reality. Why had she come? I stared at her and then I saw the look in my commander's eyes and I knew what the order would be. I stepped forward towards my mother And I raised my rifle, and she looked at me with no fear in her eyes. And then she looked at the camp. And then she said, in a voice radiating with warmth and love, You all still have a home. We stared at her blankly, and then the first stirrings of hope began to whirl around the camp, as tangible as the wind. You are all, she continued, still loved. It was then that I saw tears enter the eyes of those around me, even those of the commanders. Kill her, my commander said. His voice was shaky. He was holding on to reality that he did not want. My finger moved towards my trigger. My mother did not look at me then. She looked only at the others. And she said, With me, you can all have a second chance. I closed my eyes, not wanting to watch her die. And then I heard it. The sound of rifles dropping to the dirt. It spread furiously, and then it stopped. And I stared at her with shock and confusion, and then I lowered my own rifle to the ground. And nothing happened. In that moment, my mother, who could bear no more children, became mother to us all. My mother, my fearless mother, had found the bodies of the villagers when she'd returned. She'd understood what had happened, she'd dug up our little collection of gold, and then she'd set out in search of me, following our little band from village to village. Despite all the horrors she saw, her love never left her. she brought us from the bush, unharmed and unarmed. We expected the world to reject us, and many did, but many others just wanted a second chance. They wanted a second chance with children who had been lost, and it could finally be reclaimed. In the weeks that followed, we lived off the gold she had recovered. Soon after, our mother found international charities willing to support us. She bought a small compound in the capital. We all live there now, a band of real brotherhood, replacing our army of regret. We all live there, and we all go to school. And every morning we rise and say our prayers, and our mother glows as she watches us. And every morning as we begin our schooling, she smiles over us. Despite all the horrors she saw, her love has never left her. And we all know it never will. My father's dream is still alive. Why did I read this story? Well, earlier I talked about suicide. Suicide is an individual killing themselves. There are lots of reasons for it, but on some level there is pain, and I believe there's often self-hatred. This story is about self-hatred. It is based on reality. The Lord's resistance army in Africa recruited in similar ways as the ones I've described in the story. It probably still does. An individual suicides by killing themselves but a society suicides by no longer having children. The U.S. fertility rate, the fertility rate of the entire developed world has plummeted in recent years. How can you hope to rescue either an individual or society? In this story, it is through love and through purpose. Just like an individual, a society has to be loved and it has to have purpose in order to live a fulfilling existence. How does a society acquire love and purpose? Well, we'll get to that in a later episode. Although I will say that government policy is often only part of the answer. This is why being a candidate who can talk about anything can be more important than actually being the president, him or herself. But if you want a later episode, you are going to have to make it happen. Like any elected official, I need a mandate. So, If there are 30 listens to this podcast and 5 likes, then we'll keep going. If not, then maybe not. Show me the love and give me the opportunity and let's see just how far our $4,999 of campaign spending will take us. Thank you.